Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about someone that you've all been waiting to hear about, <laughs> Doris Wishman. I've been waiting to hear about her. Now, you really wanted to do an episode on Doris Wishman, and explain to me why. Okay. Or in the audience, because they're like, who is this person? I will explain why. Because every now and then we need to do female filmmakers, <laughs> yes. because it's the right thing to do. Uh-huh. And we need to educate ourselves. Doris Wishman is a lot easier than Chantal Ackerman. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, and also because I like her films. Doris Wishman is the queen of do sexploitation. You like her films? Yeah, I do. I mean, just because you don't doesn't doesn't mean I can't. I mean, she's uh, she's a bad filmmaker. She's she's been called the female Ed Wood, and I think that um, label fits her very well. But her films do have a certain charm. Films like Nude on the Moon, Diary of a Nudist, Bad Girls Go to Hell, Another Day, Another Man, Let Me Die a Woman, and one of her final films, Dildo Heaven. <laughs> these these are just a few of the thirty feature films that this one of the most prolific female filmmakers of all time made. And I think that looking at her filmography, what really was fascinating to me is that she actually started pretty late in her life making movies. She was in her 40s. Apparently, I mean, she she had been involved sort of peripherally in film distribution, but she started filmmaking because her husband died and she just needed to do something. This is literally like the third act of someone's life. Yeah. And because she never really had any interest in making movies, it sounds like, or a passion to do so. And definitely, I think it's fair to say, not a talent. No. But she had something. She had the drive to make 30 films which she produced directed self-financed yeah every one of her films was financed out of her own pocket often on credit because uh, reading interviews mostly with people that surrounded her they all said that they really enjoyed her company she was a very charismatic person very kind of flirty and funny and uh you know quippy And that they would often give her credit to finish her pictures. Yeah. I guess the other thing that's interesting about her is the fact that she was really one of the only female directors working in exploitation and softcore and later on hardcore. Like uh, she was working um, side by side with the kings of the genre like David Friedman and Russ Myers. Yeah. Radley Metzger, the the whole gang. And all of them seem to view her with sort of, they viewed her kind of -of matter-of-factly, it sounds like. I mean, there's the novelty of this kind of four foot eleven. Jewish widow who just in the middle of her life starts making movies. But once that novelty had subsided, basically everyone just sort of accepted her as long as she could pay, you know, as long as she could pay people's salaries. Yeah, that was the one thing. <laughs> her biographer, Michael Bowen, has a good interview on Flavor Wire where he talks about her. Uh, he's asked, did women like working with her because, you know, she was a woman? And they went, no, these women work in strip clubs and other shows like that. So as long as there was money to be paid, they didn't care. So her first movie, which I haven't seen, is called Hideout in the Sun. If people don't know, nudist camp movies were the porn of the 50s, and it was because the New York Appeals Court determined that nudism per se was not obscene, and it it had educational value. But the definition of nudism to these filmmakers is butts, breasts, no bush, no dicks. Right, so it's kind of awkward. There are all these scenes in nudist camps where you see people walking from behind, and then you see people like awkwardly holding a beach ball in front of their junk. Just long, lingering shots. I mean, really, if you've seen one nudist camp film, you've seen them all. Even in the weirder Dor- Doris Wishman films like Nude on the Moon, <laughs> where a bunch of astronauts go to the a moon. A bunch of astronauts, <laughs> too. <laughs> go to the moon and discover that it's a nudist colony. Okay, Nude on the Moon is probably my favorite nudist camp movie of all time. It's still... 
hilariously padded. Even more than the Edgar G. Ulmer nudist film? Haven't seen it. Okay. Uh, But I will eventually. But Nude on the Moon, which is her second film, begins with two guys who, you know, have a lab in what looks like a strip mall who decide, hey, listen, we have all the wherewithal to go to the moon. Let's do it and prove it to the scientific community. So they go to the moon and... The moon, it turns out, contrary to what scientists had told us... Not full of cheese. (laughs) uh, It looks like a national park, and yes, there are uh, nude women who have started a society there. But it's completely different than other nudist colonies because... They have little antennas, and they communicate telepathically. Now, this movie is bad. It's just boring. Well, I mean, it's got funny stuff in it. But the thing about it being funny is, like, the movie is so obviously shit. Even Doris Wishman knows it's shit, right? Laughing at it in an Ed Wood sense, it's kind of like, well, the movie already knows it's shit. It kind of (laughs) defeats that purpose a little bit. Even though that Doris Wishman was famous for not really understanding why some of her later films were funny, Mm -hmm. her biographer said that when he would go uh, screen the movies late in her life with new audiences at places like the Alamo Draft House. When the audience members would laugh at stuff that was bad, Doris just didn't understand. So they had to make a rule that she could not watch the movies with the public. Yeah, and he would say to her, "Oh, this crowd—they—they're all high on marijuana. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that, that's why they're laughing." This is a good point to interject that Doris Wishman was not really into the movies she was making. No, in fact, when she was making hardcore films in the seventies, I think she only made about two. Um, but supposedly, like, she would actually just leave the room when they were filming the hardcore sex scenes and there was a constant evolution throughout her filmography so she started with the nudie movies she moved to the kind of the roughies like bad girls go to hell Mm -hmm. where like there's rape scenes and stuff like that that's i guess what a roughie film is most of them were kind of black and white i guess and you know there were hardcore roughies as well but it's movies with a lot of like bondage with a lot of what they would have called forced sex very downbeat dour movies and then after that... Uh, hardcore pornography. And the end of her filmography is what most people remember, where the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, is just a baffling string of films. Movies that are unclassifiable, that make no sense. Uh, with the nudist camp movies, though, just yesterday I watched a Diary of a Nudist. Have you ever seen it? No. Uh, so the plot is that... <laughs> I like how you're like, have you ever seen it? And I'm like, <laughs> I watched all of her nudist films just to get, you know, a full-fledged understanding of her work. So the plot is a newspaper editor is hiking in uh, the wilderness, and he comes upon a nudist colony just in the middle of it. And he's like, God, I'm going to get back to my newspaper, and we're going to blow the lid off this. We're going to expose it. So he sends his best reporter, an attractive young female, to cover it. And when she gets there, she becomes a convert to the nudist lifestyle. As one does. What I think's funny is most of the nudist colony is at a pool next to a lake where there are boats seen in the background. So it's really not that much of a secret. Listen, all I want to see are breasts, Will. Well, there are breasts. I mean, you know, the nudist colony movies, I mean, I don't want to body shame anyone, but I will say that there wasn't quite a rigid quality control in, t- in terms of some, of some of the bodies that made it on screen. Doris Wishman was actually told that if she wanted to shoot in some of the nudist colonies, she would have to be nude as well. And she put her foot down and said, absolutely not. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, But I mean, what I'll say about the nudist films, and they're all the same, and they're all very boring, because I mean, most of it is just like long lingering shots of people. And look, I'm not 12 years old anymore. (laughs) Like, the idea of a naked breast is not like, whoa! Yeah, yeah, it's... (laughs) But all of them have this like kind of like uh, goofy 
upbeat charm to them. So most of the nudist movies are about like some doofus, like like the immoral Mr. T's or something like some, some short fat idiot, like stumbles upon a news camp and he acts like a doofus around them. Like, Whoa. So that's an evolution to a later film she made called keyholes are for peeping. Oh yeah. Let's talk about this. So this was a movie that I did watch Because Will said, it stars Jerry Lewis impersonator. Sammy Petrillo. Most famously known for Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Should I explain who Sammy Petrillo is? Do it. Uh, Sammy Petrillo was a discovery of Jerry Lewis. He was this like 16 or 17 year old kid who could do a pitch perfect Jerry Lewis impersonation. He played Jerry Lewis's son on TV. Oh, uh, he did? On on an episode of the Colgate Comedy Hour. Jerry Lewis signed him to a contract, but then... Sammy Petrillo didn't work for eight months. So Petrillo started to say, wait, I think Jerry's like trying to stop my career. I think Jerry's threatened by me. I'm going to break out on my own. And just do a Jerry Lewis act. Yeah. So he teamed up with this guy, Duke Mitchell, Mr. Palm Springs, who is this like lounge singer who bore certain superficial resemblances to Dean Martin. And he would most famously go on to be the director of uh, Masker Mafia style and uh, Gone with the Pope. Yeah. I, I love Duke Mitchell, but that's a subject for another podcast. <laughs> a Duke Mitchell episode, if yeah. you will. But Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo decided to go out to nightclubs as like a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, like a ripoff act and they made this film Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla which is one of my favorite movies of all time it's <laughs> utterly ridiculous Jerry tried to sue he got really pissed off but I mean he really didn't even need to because why would you go see Sammy Petrillo when you can just go see Jerry Lewis and so Sammy Petrillo hit some hard times <laughs> like really hard times <laughs> Sammy Petrillo just sort of like bounced around burlesque houses for the next 30 years of his life in this who does he play in this movie i don't remember what his name is he's a marriage counselor this, this movie's from like 1972 and he is not doing a jerry lewis impersonation he's doing kind of just a seedy old man character with hair down to his shoulders i don't know if it's like scary looking or i uh, disgusting and but he talks kind of like this the whole time the, the plot of the movie is that sammy plays a uh, put upon uh, mama's boy who gets a license to become a marriage counselor. And also in the apartment that he lives in, people look through keyholes into the apartments and they see lots of uh, decadent sex acts. That take dozens of minutes. And one sense is that most of these sex acts were not even shot for the film. No, they're from uh, previous Doris Wishman pictures and they've just, like, the colors have been changed. Uh, There are some shenanigans with Sammy wanting to have sex with his girlfriend, but, uh, you know, if he likes it, he better put a ring on that. (laughs) Um, and is there life after marriage question mark uh, as the movie asks <laughs> um, but yeah Sammy becomes a marriage counselor and an example of some of the wit in the film is that we see Sammy sitting at his desk interviewing somebody and he says ah gee whiz are you, you're telling me that your husband calls you a bitch and then when he says that I'm immediately like okay he's talking to a dog that's gonna be the joke but then he keeps going <laughs> your husband calls you a bitch he makes you have sex in the park Ah, let me tell you, your husband's barking up the wrong tree. He just keeps going and going. And then finally, (laughs) finally, the camera cuts to the dog who barks. Just as relief. It's like the most most predictable joke I've ever seen in a movie. So this movie is not good. No, but if you li- if you like Sammy like I do, <laughs> if you're a Sammy Petrillo fan... He's only made three or four movies, right? Yeah, Shangri-La. I've seen all of Sammy <laughs> Petrillo's movies. There's another one called Shangri-La, which is a nudist camp movie, where I'm sad to report you do not see Sammy naked. <laughs> well, I mean, nudist films. No male nudity. That's a rule. Oh, you see some butts. Oh, yeah, some butts. That's true. Yeah. But I think that we need to get into the meat of Doris Wishman's filmography. Specifically, 
one kind of, I don't know if I want to call it her masterpiece, but it is something, which is Let Me Die a Woman. The the Glenn or Glenda of the 70s. Just a genre-busting uh, what's-it. <laughs> what's-it? <laughs> that, that's what I would call it. Like, it is unclassifiable. And it's also a movie that you're like, who is this for? Yeah. Because it's not for the uh, raincoat audience by any stretch of the imagination. And it's not for the transgender community. Watching it, I kind of thought that it feels more like a body horror film than anything else, you know? So the movie is seemingly a documentary about some men and women that want to have a sex change. Mm -hmm. And Doris Wishman shows it at once in a very clinical fashion, but also in a very exploitative way, because you could not get more graphic than this film gets. And with certain Brechtian elements also, I would say. <laughs> yes. The movie uh, basically has two hosts, such as it is. There's Dr. Leo Wallman. Who loves to read his cue cards as he does his narration. A terrible cue card reader. He'll talk like, the new vagina is made out of the skin of the penis like <laughs> he's like discovering words and seeing how they roll off his tongue and the other protagonist is leslie uh formerly a man who has become a woman there are long interviews with her and she she really has uh, a personality i would say it's like the, all the stuff she says about her experience is not altogether coherent but it just kind of comes flowing out of her and it's got a lot of passion i mean you really get to know her at the beginning because you see her completely nude as she gets changed she sits down for an interview and then she says to the camera a year ago i was a man boom title uh this movie had a weird production history it it started in 1971 it was eventually released in 1978 according to wishman's biographer it might have been actually released in a couple of different forms before the version that we have today. It had different titles, didn't it? Yeah. Like less a exploited. I think more. there was one called Adam or Eve or something like that. But the movie, I, I mean, you can sense the movie's tortured production history because it, it feels like a white coder, which is before pornography was illegal, it would be framed as like educational films. With so you can see someone naked giving birth. Right, and there'd always be a doctor there being like, uh, this is a very serious film about the nature of the sex act. Like, usually at those screenings, they would have, um, like, people pretending to be nurses that would give mm -hmm. sell pamphlets that were just garbage. So in 1971, like, white coders were still a thing. But after Deep Throat, like, you didn't need white coders anymore. So the movie, like, actually, like, it feels like 10 years of, like, exploitation history in front of you, like, melded into one. You know, we see a lot of graphic, explicit footage of uh, gender reassignment surgery. Yeah, so we see a penis get cut off and the medical procedure to turn it into a vagina on screen. We also see a bizarre staged scene. You know what I'm talking about, where a guy has his dick on a table and he's got a hammer and a chisel. And this is the only <laughs> way that he can do the sex change operation. And you, and you see the hammer rise and then and then you think, oh, it's going to cut away, right? No, it cuts to his bloody dick. <laughs> Simulated, yes. I hasten to add. You mentioned Who's It For. I think this is a movie, more than anything, that like people probably watched on a dare, right? Like It really feels like a body horror film, like a Cronenberg sort of Just thing. Just the way, it's way presented. that it's presented, yeah. Yeah. It does deal with things that are very prescient today, mm -hmm. but in the 1970s, this was so foreign to most people. Because you see like 
groups of people going to therapy, mm-hmm. which must be simulated therapy with this terrible non-doctor. Well, it's weird because, I mean, these are actual transgender people, and they're talking about their lies, but they're reading cue cards in this weirdly stilted manner. So it kind of you're kind of not sure how much of it to take seriously, uh, how much of it's real. But, I mean, the movie, the movie is progressive to an extent, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that, like, Glenn or Glenda was. It talks a lot about how these people can't get jobs and how terrible that is. On the other hand, it's dated in the sense that back then people could only accept gender as a binary. Yeah. So we see Leslie being interviewed and she says, why would I want to burn my bra? I worked so hard to get these breasts and be able to wear this bra. Like, And we hear the doctor say something along the lines of the, the woman who turns into a man wants to have a man's place in society. So it's almost like that's there to, like, relax everyone. Like, hey, don't worry. There are still two genders. (laughs) Yeah, it's not going to change the way that you know society. It has a lot of stuff, too, where it's like brain damage can lead to being a transgender person. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I I don't want to, like, be too hard on the movie for that, because, like, the movie is about as progressive as it was possible to be Mm -hmm. in the 70s. It's even weirder when you consider that, like, Doris Richman was probably very uncomfortable with the subject matter, yeah. but she goes all in. Yeah. I highly recommend the movie. It's just like, I don't know, there's just nothing like it. I mean, it was released by Exploitation Labels on DVD, and it has a very lurid cover of a woman exploding out of a man's <laughs> skin. So. Also during the 70s, she made the movies that she's probably most famous for, which are the films starring Chesty Morgan. Oh, how can we forget the Chesty Morgan pictures? Yeah. A woman with gigantic breasts. A 73-inch bust. Uh, she made... Uh, de- Double Agent 73? Double Agent 73, Deadly Weapons. I watched uh, Double Agent 73 this week which is a movie where she she plays a hired assassin who has to kill a bunch of like heroin dealers and she has cameras in her breasts that she's that she takes the photos with (laughs) in in deadly weapons uh she smothers people with her breasts again it's like you watch these films on a dare because these are not sexy films right i think like maybe one percent of the audience for this movie jerked off to it (laughs) and and the other people it's like going to a freak show right (laughs) yeah and we should point out a trademark of doris wishman cinema which is that she almost never shot with sync sound oh yeah so what are the kind of like stylistic touches of her movies when i think of doris wishman film i think of conversations that take place on the back of people's heads (laughs) or at random objects around around the room because it's that weird attitude where Doris probably went listen I don't want people to see my movies are dubbed so I'm not going to show lips which is an insane stylistic leap to make right so there will be conversations where the camera is never on the person talking it's always on the person (laughs) listening or there's a scene in double h and 73 where a guy's on the phone you see him on the phone then it cuts to a close-up of his shirt and then it cuts to like a wide shot of him that zooms in (laughs) All of this could have just been one take, but no, it's not. In most of her movies, the camera will cut to, like, an ashtray, or it'll cut to a picture on the wall. Or, like, a plant. Yeah. Or feet. Did you ever see Lars von Trier's movie, The Boss of It All? Yes. Okay, That in that movie, he shot it with this camera called Automovision, where a, a computer would determine which camera angle it would be. That's what Doris Wishman's movies feel like. <laughs> Doris Wishman seemed to be very uh, concerned about how people would receive her films. Like, often people will just walk out of a room and someone will voice over a line of dialogue to explain a part <laughs> that will happen later on. Because she's like, I don't want there to be any continuity errors mm-hmm. or stuff like that. Which it becomes even weirder when you watch 
I would say her most famous non-naked person movie. Her only non-naked person movie. <laughs> which is A Night to Dismember. Often credited as her only horror film, which is not true. She made a film called The Amazing Transplant, where a man gets a dick transplant, which makes him go crazy uh, and turn into a serial killer. I haven't seen it, but I would very much like to. <laughs> so a night It's to the dis- story of my life, you know? <laughs> but getting a dick transplant. And being a serial killer, yeah. <laughs> so A Night to Dismember... I don't even know where to start with this one. I took some notes on the first four minutes of the movie. (laughs) Would you like to know what happens in the first four minutes of the movie? Yes. So we meet Tim O'Malley, a detective. Um, Who narrates the film. He's going to tell you about some of the cases that he's been dealing with lately. So the Kent brothers both died, except for one member of the family. Phineas Kent's mother died, so he took their daughters in and raised them. Susan, the eldest daughter, killed Bonnie, her younger sister, because Phineas favored Bonnie. Unfortunately, Susan accidentally fell on an axe and died. (laughs) Meanwhile, uh, Broderick Kent, another member of the family, discovers the bodies. The previous afternoon... Broderick Kent was on a business trip, and he left his wife Lola at home. Lola went for a walk in the garden. The next day, when Broderick arrived home, he found Lola dead in the bathtub, mysteriously. But after interrogation, Broderick confessed uh, that he hired uh, a hitman to kill his wife because she had insurance and Broderick needed the insurance to pay for his business. A few hours later, Broderick himself was found dead in his cell. Now the oldest brother, (laughs) Adam Kent... Didn't know about this. But five years earlier, Adam's daughter, Vicky, was sent to a hospital. Wait, for wait, the- wait. I'm really confused because they said there was only one Ken brother. <laughs> yeah. There seems to be multiple. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, Vicky was sent to a hospital for the clinically insane for killing neighborhood boys. And then eventually the movie becomes about Vicky. But that's the first four minutes. That's like the first ten minutes. Yeah. A bunch of random murders. There's like this scene I stopped taking notes after four minutes. <laughs> two guys are like walking in a cave for some reason. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. This is a film that Doris Wishman almost had no money when she made it. Famously, she shot most of it and the lab destroyed the footage. According to her, there was a disgruntled lab technician who, because the lab was closing, he decided to destroy, destroy all the prints there. I don't know if that's ever been confirmed, but I... I believe it. I mean, the first like 10 minutes of this movie feel like, you know, uh, just nine random... movies just edited together and yeah. scenes and stuff like that. And Doris, it's the one of the only films that she edited personally because she was so low on funds at this point that she had to teach herself the art of editing. And she's still teaching herself watching this film. <laughs> it is filled with random musical drops out of nowhere from stock library music. It definitely feels like, you know how... A filmmaker's late works are often kind of like their style distilled to its essence. That's what this feels like. It's just pure Wishman. It is a nightmare watching it. Yeah. Once the story does settle down, it does make a little more sense than what Will explained. But it's still like a character will suddenly appear. We're going to follow them for five minutes and then they'll be murdered. It's almost impossible to follow. All of Wishman's stylistic flourishes, like in a lot of her movies, she likes to do like the photo negative effect to create this sort of like dream state uh that's all over this movie the only movie only like 70 minutes oh it feels like four hours <laughs> did you listen to her commentary i listened to bits of it yeah me too uh which it's her and her longtime cinematographer like long time like he made tons of movies with her and they, but they seem to hate each other they talk like an old married couple where it's like chuck stop interrupting me and every time she'll be like this movie was edited with a lot of care and then he'll be like doris i, I don't understand what's going on here wow you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You'll be like that for the whole commentary. Because <laughs> the movie, as we've already stated, makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And it's 
shockingly violent at times. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know, being such a low-budget production, I expected to just cut away. Nope, throats are slit, um, th- uh, heads are punctured. There's a scene where a woman cuts off somebody's fingers with an axe, but she cuts off each finger individually the way it's edited. <laughs> and honestly, I think if you gave me an axe, I could do the whole job in one go. <laughs> Doris Wishman really wants you to enjoy the experience. But summing up Doris Wishman, uh, I watched a video that Fandor had put together called uh, The Queen of Sexploitation, and it, in trying to make the case for her as an auteur, it, sa- it said two things. It said sex is often cold and transactional in her films, and often an act of cruelty, which may be attributable to the fact that she was a bit of a prude in real life, or it may just be the fact that roughies were popular at the time, so she made roughies. In Deadly Weapons, for instance, like there's no sensuality in a movie like that. And that's after the the roughy genre. So maybe there's something to that. Ugh. I mean, Doris Wishman kept on kicking, even after A Night to Dismember, mm-hmm. making films all the way in the early 2000s, including Dildo Heaven, which I found a interview that she did on the Conan O'Brien show, mm-hmm. where she shared the stage with Roger Ebert, of all people. Yeah, and Roger Ebert, a, a noted breast man, he he chided her for the fact that Chesty Morgan wasn't nude enough in her, in her movies, which, frankly, I disagree with. <laughs> she I is think, naked a lot I think, in her I films. think we see plenty of Chesty Morgan. Maybe a little too much, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and Chesty Morgan's still alive, by the way. She is? I read an interview with her a few years ago where she, she lives in Florida and she is apparently a big fan of Fox News. So, oh. uh, But, you know, you got to separate the artist from the art. <laughs> <laughs> She's Swedish. I thought that they were free and liberal. I don't know. And Doris Wishman sadly passed away, uh, I guess, in the early 2000s. Two, I think 2002. Um, but uh, do you want to talk about just the fact that she was a woman making these movies? Uh, like, does that... Is there anything... is that the reason that we're talking about her? Like, I think I think so. I mean, you can't deny the fact that she has a style. As you said at the beginning of this podcast, she is not talented in telling these stories. And also, I think what separates her from some of the better bad filmmakers is, you know, somebody like Ed Wood or someone like Tommy Wiseau gives the impression of being a real tortured artist, somebody who had to communicate well, these stories. Someone that's also passionate about what they're doing. While they may be doing it incorrectly, like you said, they feel that these stories need to be told. While Doris Wishman... While she kept making movies, which is weird because, like, wouldn't you just go do something else? It feels like this is the only thing she could do, even if they're... Well, you know, we saw her uh, be interviewed by Jonathan Ross on the Incredibly Strange Film Show, where she said, uh, I'm going to keep making movies till I die, and then after I die, I'll make movies in hell. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe... she had a certain passion, but, but like, you don't sense that she's passionate about the subject matter. Yeah. You sense she's passionate about the act of making films. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's like a Jess Franco-like figure that she just needs to make movies. So, I mean, I don't know if the fact that she's a woman comes across in the films i mean you you kind of you almost kind of want it to just because she's like the only female sexploitation director so well let's not forget roberta finley also made i'm uh, sorry how could i forget (laughs) yes but she is probably the most famous one Mm -hmm. that made sexploitation films in an industry dominated by men she was there still chugging along and being so prolific and she's made like a lot of movies that i've enjoyed and thought were funny (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> but not, you know, she didn't write comedies. You were just laughing at her. Well, Keels Are For Peeping is a comedy. <laughs> and, and it's probably her least funny film. 
It's letter time, Will. Okay. <laughs> I don't hear excitement on your voice. All right, we'll just Sorry, skip to the I'm, next I'm on se- my phone right now. <laughs> we'll skip to the next segment. Um, uh, next <laughs> yeah. week, we'll Let- doing- Letters, letters. <laughs> Let's do a letter. <laughs> if you want to send us letters, we'd be happy to have them. Feel free to ask us questions, even about the subjects that we do, or I don't know. Any film-related thing, or any personal questions <laughs> that you want to know. <laughs> Our email is importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And like, if you send us a letter, we will read it yeah. on air. <laughs> yeah. So, this week's letter is from Jordan Crosby. He writes, Dear Justin DeClue and Will Slow. That's me. I just want to thank you for the podcast. I've had the worst week, and this podcast has not only cheered me up, but given me a few ideas for my PhD title. Anyway, I was wondering if you guys would ever consider doing an episode on Paul Verhoeven, especially after L left such an impression on both of you. Best wishes, Jay. Well, well thanks for the letter, That's Jay. very sweet. That actually makes me feel happy. <laughs> a, a strange feeling for Will Sloan. <laughs> He's shaking and sweating in front of me. Wow. Uh, would we do Paul Verhoeven? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. yeah, we love Paul we'll Verhoeven. Def- like within the next 50 episodes, we will do him. <laughs> I, pro- I promise you that. Absolutely. Yeah. So next week, we're going to be doing someone that is very important for both me and Will that we talked about within the first 10 episodes. A man who definitely like helped shape my perception <laughs> of what it means to be a man. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. A man who, when I first saw Rocky when I was eight, I got my parents to buy me a, like, little toy, like, bo- uh, boxing, uh, what do you call it? Like, like Rock'em Sock'em Robots? No, or? no, like, boxing gloves and, uh, what's the thing you punch? Oh, the punching bag? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, punching bag. Like You actually did it because you wanted to be, like, a boxer? Like Well, I don't know if I wanted to be a boxer, but I got a, <laughs> I got a toy child-sized boxing bag and, and, like, pounded it like Rocky because I... <laughs> I liked it so much. I think that Stallone is a fascinating figure in the way that he makes very dumb movies like The Expendables. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, he's like, I want to make an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation where I direct and star as Poe. And his directorial efforts, I think, definitely show the temperament of an artist. So we're going to be watching Paradise Alley, his first directorial effort. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll watch it. And why not Rambo Four? Oh, the oh the recent John one. Rambo, yeah, yeah the yeah, one that yeah. kind of lifted him up out of the sad direct-to-video land he had fallen into. Yeah, okay, let's do it. All right, well, until then, my name's Justin the Clue. I was Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So I just got a letterboxed account. That is shocking, because you said before, why would I ever get that? Like, I don't need to have an opinion on everything. Well, and the way I've reconciled it is I don't have an opinion on everything. I just, like, log it and occasionally, like, press the heart button if I liked it. But yeah, Letterboxd, I've always had a bit of an antipathy towards it because I was tired of going on and seeing everyone's like contrarian hot takes. They pop up on the front page and it's like, Batman vs. Superman, five stars. Or It reminds me of Murnau's Faust. And you're like, what yeah. are you doing? Or the other end, it'll be like, The Seventh Seal, three and a half stars. <laughs> it's like, three and a half stars? <laughs> like... Oh, was it not good enough for you? And then they all have their like pithy one sentence review that that's just like it's supposed to be funny, but it's and I'm including myself here because I've never yeah, including me. That's yeah. what I do all the time. And and it's never funny, including mine. But whatever. <laughs> and what made you actually want to go and get an account? I don't know exhibitionism. <laughs> I want people to see what I'm doing. Oh, you actually do want people to see what you're doing. I thought you had just gotten it because you wanted to keep track of the movies that you watch. Wherever someone who like wrote them in books or kept your 
ticket stubs and put them in shoeboxes? Oh, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I have a list of the movies I've seen. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I always try to do that, and I always lose track, and I watch too many, and I'm just like, who cares? But social media is all about exhibitionism, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's no other reason to have a social media account. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just do it in, like, I don't know, a diary or something like that? What do you like about Letterboxd? Well, I like the fact that I can keep track of all the movies that I'm watching. It's really easy. I just type it in, boom, picture, all that stuff. I'd like to say I love the great conversations that come from the movies that I post, but I've never had a conversation <laughs> on any review that I've posted. Mostly because I've noticed that if you write really long reviews, people like that. They actually don't usually like the one-line pithy reviews. Oh my god, why would you write a really long review on Letterboxd? So it's so much so much work. I mean, it's, it's so much work when you're, when you're getting paid for the article, but wh- why do it for free? <laughs> because this begs the question of did you used to write reviews when you were young and you had like nowhere for them to go? Oh yeah, when I was a kid, definitely. I, I did too, and I don't know where that feeling comes from. It still happens today where I'm like, I have to write about this, and I'm like, well, I don't really have anything interesting to say or different than what other people think so well, it's weird to me that like when i was a kid i used to write for pleasure as opposed to now when i write for a living <laughs> so you like grit your teeth you know, at when, the keyboard when your like... passion becomes your work what, <laughs> what can i say but yeah when i was a kid i used to have like it like will's movie guide like like leonard malton <laughs> so in like only for you right in a little yeah like... in a little in a little book and and i have little capsule reviews within the leonard malton style and the thing is every movie would get four stars out of five because it's like <laughs> because four star meant very good and i just thought everything was very good except for the occasional movie like batman or dick tracy oh, so got, gets five i got five yeah but what about schindler's list you're like two stars boring hadn't not seen, enough batman hadn't seen it yet i gave hunt for red october a <laughs> bomb grade because i thought it was boring because I couldn't follow it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, when I was a kid, I used to make little zines with my brother, and so, like, draw every page, fold it over mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and as it went along, I would write reviews on the internet and stuff like that, but I don't know what is this need to share your opinion, often with no one. Well, I don't know, maybe some of it is just, like, you're growing up and you just want to, like, you want to have opinions, you want to define yourself as a thinking person with your own views. Like, there are literally, I think, about five blogs over around the internet that have hundreds and hundreds of reviews that I've written. Mm. One called Punch a Shark. One called Toronto Film Junk. Uh, Do you I, want people looking this up? They can if they want. Okay. Like, uh, I'm, what, like 17 writing these mm. movie reviews? So it doesn't really bother me that much. You know, we grew up in the generation that we were able to put stuff on the internet and people could actually read our opinions for the first time compared to, like, even the early 90s where people were writing it to no one. Yeah. Do you think that, like, shapes us differently or...? Uh, I th- I think so, definitely. Well, part of it is, I mean, we, uh, like, because we were there as the internet was coming into its own, we got to see the birth of the internet as, like, a place where it would, like, foster community amongst like-minded people. I mean, before the 90s, if you wanted, if you were interested in... I don't know what some of the dumb shit we're interested in. like like I for me I it used to blow my mind that there would be websites online devoted to Bruce Lee exploitation movies like Bruce Lai and Bruce La those Cuz you go like I can't believe that someone else is interested yeah, in this other exactly. than me. Yeah, exactly. Or Mystery Science Theater is another example. Like, it didn't that didn't play on TV in Canada, so it was amazing to me that there was so much on the internet about it. Especially pornography, where you'd be like, whoa, someone is into that too. <laughs> there is MST3K slash fiction out there. There is not. No, there is. I mean, I think so. there is a website for it. I think it, it must be, it like must a, be joke. a joke. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I can't see anybody getting that kind of... Um, thrill from tom servo going down on i don't know well, geez, frank na- three <laughs> now that you mention it i'm s- starting to get a little hot under the collar here but i have to uh, draw the line at imdb 
That is something oh, yeah. that I never had an account for that I wanted to write reviews for. Did you ever do it? I think I did, but I, th- I think they're gone by now. Like, like this is like when I'm 13 or something. Because that is I the can't... proving ground of, like, the I was, scum yeah, of the internet. It, it, like, if I did, and, and I think I did, like, maybe one or two back in the day, but it, it, I, it never took off for me, really. I, I like the message boards better, though, because it's great to find out what people think about uh, the way actresses look naked. <laughs> So do you, I always do that. Every time I watch a new movie, I like scroll down to the message boards I, being like, what am I going to get out of this? Well, <laughs> the thing is, every message board is the same because because all of all of the message boards, there's one topic that's like whoever the actress is, like talking about her tits. Then there's another one that's like, I don't get the ending. And then there's another one that's <laughs> this movie is shit. And then there's another one that's like another example of godless liberals. That's every IMDb message board. It's a perfect encapsulation of our entire society. Those like IMDb message it's boards. It's an encapsulation of my brain, really. <laughs> Those are like the four, <laughs> the four quads. If anything, you wish there were multiple uh, nude reviews of like different parts of the body. So, well, I mean, you know, Mr. Skin is my is my new. Is Leonard Mr. Bond. Skin still around? Yeah, yeah, he's still like. Why? Why would you? You have to still buy a membership to Mr. Skin. <laughs> which is unthinkable to me. Like, why would you? I was going to say, do you have a membership to Mr. Skin? No, I mean, I could just, like, go anywhere else on the internet. 